My kids love to visit their grandparents and my brothers and sisters' kids love visiting their grandparents and uh, my parents love visiting their grandkids and love it when the grandkids come to visit. So I just wanted to share a quick little story that's sort of a amalgam of multiple different times of usually this is kind of what happens at the front door, uh, but maybe with a little bit of exaggeration, just a little bit. Uh, usually what happens at the front door, they'll knock, open the door, there's lots of screaming and squalling, ah, look who's here, and then my mom will run to the door, and before the little ones can even get in the door, she's already smothering them with kisses and hugs and love and, and demonstrating her love for them. And there is a hope that all of this love and affection will be reciprocated, right? Uh, and the, the thing is, whenever she's approaching them, the athleticism of these kids, uh, the agility that is displayed is something that would, would humble uh, Miles Garrett in the NFL, the way that they put a swim move on my mom to go right past and grab a book and climb up in Papa's lap and sit. And my mom will just sit there and look and go, how do you do that? And dad with this smug look on his face will just say, you're, you're trying too hard. <laughs> and here's the thing, with the Lord, a lot of times we try too hard, especially when we mistakenly think that sin is the main issue and we make sin the main thing that we focus on, that we try to demonstrate to God how moral we are and how sinless we are. We either obsess over getting rid of the sin in our life or we try to fool ourselves into thinking that our sin is not as bad as it is or worse, we try to fool God. But either way, there's either a direct or indirect emphasis and focus on sin being the primary thing that dictates whether we are one with God or not. And this is the uh, surprise of this passage that we're in this morning that shocked me. When, it, when you get down to it, sin is not what ultimately separates us from the Lord. And it's a beautiful truth. Y'all turn with me to Jeremiah chapter two. And again, I should reiterate Dan's uh, disclaimer and, uh, and the elders disclaimer that there is some dicey stuff in here with some sexual language. And um, I, we welcome you, encourage you to listen to the Lord on if you and or your children should be in here um, because we are going to, as always, try to go verse by verse and see all that the Lord has to say to us. And if in the middle of this, you feel the discernment of the Lord to say, take your kids out, we trust 
the Lord as he leads you. And um, if you ever are wondering what are we gonna talk about, just read ahead. We're just gonna keep plowing right through Jeremiah. And we're in chapter two now. So chapter two, just to kind of catch us up where we, where we have been, look at chapter two, verse nine, which says, therefore, I still contend with you, meaning Israel. God is saying, I contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. God speaking to Israel, and the word contend is sort of a legal term. He's saying, I have a legitimate legal case against you. And the context there was they have changed their God, changed their glory. They have sinned in two ways, forsaking God and choosing broken cisterns in his place. And they are guilty. And look at verse 27. Verse 27, their normal day-to-day is to say to sticks and stones, you are my father, you are my mother. But look at the end of verse 27. In a time of trouble, they say, arise and save us to God. They turn to God in the times of trouble, 28. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? This is how God responds when they cry out for help. Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many are your cities, are your gods, O Judah. This was a harsh response from the Lord, but it was because they wanted to have him as savior, but not as Lord. They were content to follow all their gods through their normal life, and then when they get in a pinch, cry out to God. And God said, no, let let those gods you serve day in and day out save you if they're gonna. And again, they are guilty. And so now look at verse 29. This is our new verses for today. And you'll see a familiar word. This is God speaking through the prophet. And he says, why do you contend? There's that word contend, this legal word. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. And notice he's using the same word, but the roles are reversed right now. Earlier in the chapter, he's saying, I'm contending against you. I have a legitimate legal claim against you and your guilt. And you are contending against me. You have beef with me. You have a gripe with me. It's like if uh, somebody did something criminal against you and you sued them and then they counter sue you and you're like, what? This is God saying, you don't have beef with me. I have beef with you. You contend against, you're bringing a formal complaint, a legal complaint against me? Are you kidding? You contend against me? No, he says, you have all transgressed. Not just some of them, but you have all transgressed against me. I haven't transgressed against you. You've got this backwards. You've transgressed against me. And the word transgressed, can mean to break away from or to commit criminal action or just rebel, to rebel. You've all rebelled against me. So you have no standing, no legal standing, no shot, no 
case here to come against me. You're coming against me, but you're guilty. And I can relate to this. Um, Not that I necessarily make formal complaints against God, but I do it in a more cowardly way of the subtlety of a bad attitude where I'm communicating with my heart. God, I'm, I don't like what you've given me right now. I, I deserve a little bit better treatment than this, so I'm gonna express that with a little bit of a foul mood. And here, God is saying, you contend with me? And now he's gonna look back and reflect on their past, his relationship with Israel as a nation and the different generations that come. And he says in verse 30, in vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. So he says, in vain, or that word can mean that it's just a worthless waste of time. And think about your kids. When you correct your children, have you ever just thought, this is, this is, I'm wasting my breath, or I'm wasting perfectly good belts on you, because nothing is changing. And God could say, I'm wasting perfectly good profits on you, because look what he says. He said, I sent It's the children, but then he also says, I've sent prophets to you to correct you. And with your own sword, look at, he compares the way that they treat these prophets to a sword and a lion to highlight their violent treatment and rejection and at times murder of these prophets that God was sending to his children to say, you're getting off course. And they weren't having it. So in vain, he's wasting his time trying to correct them. It didn't work. And that, that begs the question, what exactly does God want to accomplish with this correction? What is it that makes him say, I've corrected, but in vain? What is it that he wanted it to produce that it did not produce? We're gonna see in a few more verses. What is it that he's wanting from correction? But look in verse 31, if he was kind of reflecting on past generations, now he's gonna zero in on the current generation right in front of his face in verse 31. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord, And when you see that word, behold the word of the Lord, this is a uh, indicator of a prophetic utterance. And that phrase, the word of the Lord, he says, listen up the word of the Lord or the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah as we've already read earlier in the book. The word coming near is Yahweh himself verbally and personally pursuing and interacting with and revealing himself to his people. This is what's going on when the word comes near. And he's saying, behold, the word of the Lord. So he's emphasizing this prophetic utterance 
listen up. And he asked two questions. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. So the first question, have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Have I been to you just sort of a wasteland of nothing but sand and emptiness? Have, have I been that to you? Or have I been a land of milk and honey that I plopped you in from nothing of your own, own doing? And have I been a land of thick darkness? Or have I been a light to you, leading you through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud and fire? And a land of thick darkness also implies danger. Have I been a danger to you or exposed you to danger? Or have I protected you by my outstretched arm? So this first question, the obvious answer is no. Have I been a wilderness and thick darkness to you? No, I haven't. And then look at the next question. Why then... Do my people say, we're free, we're gonna come to you no more? And the answer to that question is there, there is absolutely no good reason. There is no good reason for them to say, we are free, we belong to no one. And that they would somehow say incorrectly, God has been a wilderness and deep darkness to us. Therefore, because of this treatment of us, we are free to break covenant and go be with whomever we want. Have you heard the phrase, dance with the one who brought you? So just imagine a girl gets asked to prom and, and she's okay with this because this guy is super wealthy and super connected and he sends her all the fanciest dresses and jewelry to show up to this prom decked out to the nines and, and beauty treatments and all the rest. And then, and he's showering her with love and beauty and affirmation. And so she takes all this and then they show up. And she, oh, by the way, he shows up in like the biggest limousine in town, okay? And then takes, and they show up to the dance. And then right as they cross the threshold, she says, thanks, see you later. And walks and proceeds to dance with and converse with everyone in the room except the one. And, and just imagine this guy like saying, come over. And her going, nope, not having it. And saying, may I cut in? And her going, nope. Like th that she would use all all of his wealth and love and willingness to get her to the ball and then say, see you later. This is Israel and God. He found her wallowing as a newborn baby, a discarded baby with uncut umbilical cord, wallowing in her own blood, as Ezekiel describes it, and said, rise and live and married her 
and cultivated her and made her beauty beautiful and adorned her. And she mistakenly thought all of this was because of her own doing and took all of those things to court other lovers and other gods. And here you have a people who have been rescued and beautified and cleansed and adorned and matured by God himself. And then they say, thank you for getting me here, but now I am no longer yours. And he says, he asks this question, how can you say we are free and we will come to you no more? It's absurd. And then we get to this word, come. We are free, we will come no more to you. And now we have the answer to the question of what did God want out of his correction of his children? What do you want out of correction of your children? Is it not that they would humble themselves, admit they're wrong and just come to you? And have intimate fellowship with you? Is that not what you want? Is that not what God wants? He wants them to come. And he's heartbroken that they won't. We are free and we will come to you no more. And now it drops it in my lap again. How do I handle the correction of the Lord? Whether that come through a verse that I read or an elder or a friend or my wife, however the voice of the Lord speaks to me, how do I respond to that? Is it defensiveness or is it humility and instead of turning away from the Lord, to turn to him. And now he asks in verse 32, two more questions to highlight the absurdity of their rejection of him. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And so these ornaments or these jewels of a young betrothed woman are these, this, this emblem, this thing that she is most proud of and often with sort of family legacy pride built in of these jewels that are handed down and given. It's an identity thing of I am proud of where I came from and I'm proud of who I belong to. And her bridal attire says, I am claimed. I am chosen. I am wanted. And the thought of a betrothed woman not putting on those jewels 
and not putting on that bridal attire is absurd. And notice, it's, the word in here twice, I'm suspicious of, and I almost want to put quotes around this word forget. Can a virgin forget her ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. If a, if a bride goes around without these things on, it's not unlike a man going out to the club and leaving his wedding ring at home. It's him saying, I am on the market. It's a, this bride not wearing this stuff is her saying, I belong to no one. I am on the market and I'm looking. So I don't think this is an accusation of being absent-minded. I think it's a clear accusation of rejection of the Lord. And God continues to make this bold accusation and to say it's not just that she, this bride, that Israel was making herself available, like just being available, but no, it was an active pursuit of other lovers. Listen to what it says in verse 33. How well you direct your course to seek love so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. You're, you're not just good at it. You're now the, a teacher. Uh, the Net Bible translates this. My, how good you have become at chasing after your lovers. Why, you could even teach prostitutes a thing or two. You have become the, the experts, the authority on pursuing other lovers. You've become worse than the worst, worse than the wicked women, the prostitutes, and you can teach them a thing or two. And then look at verse 34. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. And you did, you did not find them breaking in. So see what he does here. He's, this is, remember, contend is legal language. So think of it in, in, in terms of God saying, okay, exhibit A, the skirt, your clothing has the lifeblood of innocent people on it. And now he's merging language of sexual immorality with skirt and idolatry and now injustice. The lifeblood of the guiltless, the innocent, poor. And so now this, he just with one little phrase just heaped it on a whole other massive offense to the heart of God. You can't read through the Old Testament and see how his heart is just bleeding for the, the oppressed and the outcast and the marginalized and the 
weaker ones that are getting picked on and are getting taken advantage of. And he says, not only are you guilty of turning your back on me, but also of taking advantage of the poor violently. And these people, the lifeblood of these people is on you and they're innocent, the guiltless poor. It's not like they broke into your house and you could have some sort of standing to say, I killed them because they were, it was self-defense. No, he's saying, no, these are people that you just took advantage of. And you are guilty. Okay, look at the last part of verse 34. Yet, that's a contrast word. Yet, in spite of all these things, the contrast is against the logical flow of thought, which is the logical flow of everything that is just a big heaping pile of evidence pointing at their guilt. You are guilty. Yet, against all odds and all evidence and all logic, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. And so, the juxtaposition of those two phrases are fascinating to me. The phrases, I am innocent, and surely his anger has turned from me. And it just, for me, highlights the self-deception that we are all so susceptible to, that you can somehow say, I am innocent, and then say, maybe his anger has run out. Maybe it's almost run out. Without really reckoning with the fact of, why is he angry in the first place? It, it must be because I'm not innocent, you see? But they're saying, I am innocent. And maybe he's about to cool off. You see how those don't go together? And there's this self-deception. They insist on their own innocence and somehow have some awareness of their own guilt and how God feels about them and all they can do is hope that he will cool off. Surely his anger has turned from me. And again, I can relate to this. I think we try this all the time. Whenever I have like really, really blown it, I'm tempted first to distance myself from the Lord and get a good two or three days, maybe a week in of good behavior before I turn to him again in hopes that he'll just, I wanna give him space to cool off. And if I do that, if I just turn away and try to wait him out, then I never have to repent. Repent. 
get to keep my pride intact. So I prefer that route in my flesh. And the problem is, uh, it doesn't work like that. His justice is too holy and too perfect and too pure and too burning white hot to just burn out. His perfect holy justice is a lot like a Tesla battery fire that just keeps burning and burning. You can't put those suckers out. They, I think they do have some sort of special chemical extinguisher that'll actually put it out. And for God's justice, there's one thing that'll put it out. And it's not, not sinning. To say, I'm, done, I'm not going to sin anymore does not appease the perfect justice and holy wrath of God. I'm going to come back and finish verse 35 in a moment. But first I want you to notice that he says, I will bring judgment And he's gonna bring it also on the things that they put their trust in. Look at verse 36. How much you go about changing your way. Israel, you're so fickle. You jump from me to trusting in, as we'll see in this text, you put your trust in Assyria to protect you. That didn't work out. You put your trust in Egypt to protect you. And that's not gonna work out. You're so fickle. He says, you shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too, you will come away with your hands on your head for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. So notice this comparison. You see the word as and you see the repetition of the word put to shame. You'll be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. So he's putting those two together. Say, so how, was, how were they put to shame by Assyria? Because whatever that was, the exact same thing is gonna happen in Egypt as they turn to Egypt. And you notice it at the end of the verse, it was Assyria was whom they put their trust in. Do you see it? The last part of verse 37. They had put their trust in Assyria. And because God had rejected Assyria, it didn't work. And the same thing happens. They go running and turning, not to Yahweh, they go run and turn to Egypt, another idol. And they keep changing their way. They'll find any Lover other than Yahweh. And God says, I have rejected them. So it's not going to work. They're not going to save you. They're not going to prosper you. And you will be ashamed. 
That's why it says hands over their head in shame. And by the way, I think this is a pretty good prayer to pray. How gracious of God to reject the things they were putting their trust in. When we're leaning on things other than him, how gracious of him to kick it out from under us and to make it fail. So we'd stop putting our trust in lesser lovers. And so he does for them. All right, now back to verse 35. You say, this is God saying to Israel, somehow against all odds and against all the evidence, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. So what is God saying here? He's saying, no, you're not innocent. You're guilty. And no, my anger has not turned away. And he says, behold, or it can be translated, watch out, get ready. I will, not might, I will bring you to judgment. But notice, how does God say it? Why will God bring judgment? Does God bring judgment because they sinned? I hope y'all see the gospel right here. Do you see what he says? I will bring you to judgment, not for sinning. I bring you to judgment for saying that I haven't for saying that I haven't sinned, simply refusing to admit that you've sinned. That's what he's after. He's after a humble heart that would come to him, that would take their licks and get the point and say, okay, I see, and come to him and say, I have blown it again. I have sinned. Imagine if God said to you, if you want to be one with me forever, you've got to run the 100 meter dash in 8.58 seconds. Okay, so Usain Bolt ran it in 9.58, and that's the record, okay? And so if God told me that, I'd say, okay, I've Got some work to do. <laughs> so I can, I can either spend the rest of my life working my butt off and devote my entire life around working and trying harder in hopes to someday get close to this standard to prove by my works and effort that I am worthy. Or I can go the other route where I just try to approximate it and, what's the word? Build up the illusion of success and just make sure everybody knows how fast I am and hopefully the lie will stick. 
and I'll never meet the standard, and I'll die trying. Now imagine, instead God said, if you want to be with me, you just have to admit, I'm a little slow. (laughs) If you just have to admit, I'm not good enough. If you just have to admit, I'm a sinner. How beautiful is that? He doesn't want you to be good. That's not the main thing that he's after. How could we ever, like if we think us trying to be good is gonna make him go, okay, now you've earned it, then we have no concept of how holy he really is. We can't get close. It's not about that. He somehow loves you and loves me. He has decided to put his love on you and say, I require one thing that you admit that you're a sinner. And this is kind of tragic because human pride and ego is so insidious and so a part of the DNA of of our flesh that for some of us, the hardest phrases in the world to ever come out of our mouths to our spouses, our children, our bosses, our coworkers, much less God, are the phrases, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, or I am sorry. In the flesh, we have this built-in propensity to avoiding admitting guilt at all costs. It's like our instinct to breathe. If you've ever been in a pool and tried to see if you or your friend could hold your breath the longest underwater, at some point, I don't know, a minute in or something, you start having this urge to go take a breath and you have to fight this urge to breathe. And this instinct in us to defend ourselves is that way. We have to suppress this instinct to say, but I didn't do it. Or, but, but I tried really hard. Like we, it's so counter to our flesh to humble ourselves and to say, I was wrong. And this is just the beauty of the gospel to say, I can't. Jesus, you can. I believe. I trust in you. I'm done trusting in me. The Lord is longing to be close. And for that to happen, he doesn't want you to be strong. He wants you to admit that you're weak. And then he can be married to you forever. The Lord delights in a humble heart that says I was wrong. And he requires a humble heart that says I have sinned. And it occurs to me that many of us are trying too hard with God. And we've made this life with Jesus about sin and attacking sin and stopping sinning and being more moral. And we're trying too hard. 
It's never the sin itself that separates us from intimacy with the Lord. It's the refusal to simply admit you have sinned. And to the extent that we don't, we're rebelling. And we need to accept our desperate need of him. He simply wants a humble heart. And I was trying to find a deep cut of some verse that uh, would be kind of obscure, but I I can't get to drive this home with Jesus and I, I can't get past just John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever tries the hardest, doesn't say that, does it? That whoever stops sinning, doesn't say that either. Whoever believes in him will not die, but will have everlasting life. To believe in him means you stop believing in yourself. Stop trusting your ability to fix it. Stop trusting your ability to stop sinning. We've got to surrender and humble ourselves and believe in the only one that can accomplish anything in our hearts and who already has on the cross and in the empty tomb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, <laughs> for demonstrating humility to us. And thank you so much for your love for us being so pure that it's not about what we do or can do for you, but it's about us. It seems so ill-advised. It seems like a poor choice of a partner for you to choose me and save me. And I pray that you would give us all your heart, Jesus, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and accept we are not mighty, you are. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you've been inspired and blessed by the truths of God's word shared today. At Faith Bible Church, we believe that all Christians should actively participate in the local church. It is in the community of believers where we grow in faith, encourage one another, and serve God together. We invite you to visit and hopefully become a part of our Faith Bible Church family. You'll find a welcoming and nurturing environment to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. Our address, service times, and more information can be found on our website, brazosfaith.org. Thank you again for joining us in this meaningful journey through God's Word.